of chapter 1, the last verse of last week's sermon, it said this, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We start this week on after coming downhill from last week. We're at a dark point. We're at a low point of the Hebrew story. And we have today in chapter 2 the appearance, the arrival, uh, the creation of the hero who will be the redeemer, who will be the mediator between God and his people, Moses. We have the intervention of God into the story in ways that we have not seen yet while they have been in Egypt. So our, our chapter today... Chapter 2 is going to cover about 80 years, or at least 80 years until he comes back. Sorry, so today we'll really cover about 40 years. And our last chapter, chapter 1, covered about 400 years since their arrival to then their enslavement and the abortion and genocide at the end of chapter 1. But look with me to chapter 2 as we read the entire chapter for today's exposition. Now... A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, he was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the daughter went, uh, the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him up out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water, uh, uh, to water their father's flock. And shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and drove them away and saved them and watered the woman's flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, Well, an Egyptian uh, delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, 
And where is he? Uh, why, have you, why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat some bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. May God bless in our midst this morning his own inerrant, precious, authoritative word to us. Here we have Moses' origin story. This is a, he's one of the highest and most uh, important uh, heroes or saviors or characters of the Old Testament. And we're sort of going back to a, an edition one of the comic book series and seeing his origin story, how he came to be and how exactly he was introduced to the story. Look at verse one. We have, as we do last week, the great common grace, blessing and command of God obeyed by this Levite man. His name's Amram. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. What did he do? What did he see as his responsibility to do in the midst of murderous Egypt when culture was against him, when it was godless, it was unrighteous, it was evil, it was dangerous and perilous times. He could do very little. What did he do? He went and found a wife. Well, he found a woman. She wasn't a wife yet. Gents, sorry, you have to, they're women first, all right? You find them as a woman, she made it, he made her his wife, and then she, he made her a mother and made a home for them. That's what you do. That, as we saw last week, that's, that's uh, the, the, the old saying uh, has been, uh, resistance is fertile. That's the, there you go, good old laugh. Resistance is fertile. This is how you, you, you front up and resist and, and, and uh, rebel against tyranny 101 in very godly and biblical ways is you find a woman, man, you make a home, you make her a wife, and you make a family. That, that's what he did. He was obeying what we went through last week, the command to Adam, repeated to Noah, and then repeated uh, uh, to all mankind, and especially promised to Abraham, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion over it as God's image bearers. So Amran took the responsibility of men. He did what he was supposed to do as a man, and especially a man of God, a man, a son of Abraham. He cast fear to the side. It was a dangerous thing to take a wife and risk having children that would then be hunted down by the Egyptians. It was a risky thing. He was, he was adding to his responsibility. He was a slave, I mean, he was going out every day for no pay, eating the breadcrumbs they threw to him, going home. He, he, he voluntarily took upon himself extra responsibility to look after one of those women of his own tribe by going and getting married. Something he, we would think he didn't have to do, but he did that. He took the responsibility of men, cast fear to the wayside, and continued on in faithfulness where God had put him. At this early stage, we can just take a, take a lesson that sometimes in life, in our uh, process, in history, when all you can do is what you can do, then all you do is what you can do and ask God to do what only he can do. There's times when we can't uh, take 10 steps. We can't plan five years. We can't uh, change all the things that we see around us. All that you, we can do, when there's all that you can do is what you can do right in front of you, then friends, do that 
and then ask God to do the extraordinary things. Ask him to take control of what you cannot take control over. This is, this is the act of faith. Faith goes hand in hand with faithfulness. He was faithful in the simple things, and God came in and made this a decisive turning point of Israel's slavery. God came in at this point. Now, with hindsight, it's so easy to see. You know what's happening. When you hear they went and had a baby and, and you're reading Exodus chapter, you know what's coming next because you've read the story. Hindsight is a glorious thing. The, the Israelites, when they were out in the wilderness and they were hearing the book of Exodus read to them for the first time and hearing for the first time the origin stories of their leader Moses, they knew that this was a decisive moment. This is, this is Moses. He's going to end up being a hero. But Amran did not know that. Jochebed, his mother, Moses' mother, did not know that. All they were doing was being faithful in the moment that they had, obeying God's command to have families. They did what they could. And this whole story of Moses' origin is a, is a long line, a long chain of just simple, faithful acts by nobodies. As far as they were concerned, he was just one slave boy having another little baby with another slave woman. And it was... The future was uncertain. Faithfulness is not tested, is not uh, put to the test in the moment of hindsight. By the time you have hindsight, it's too late to be faithful. You're already looking back. Faithfulness is tested when we don't know what the outcome's going to be, but we decide to be obedient and faithful in that moment anyway. And this was the case of Amran. He was just a guy who just took a gal and they just had a baby, but God had blessed those acts of simple faithfulness to bring about the hero, the deliverance, and the redemption of their people from slavery. Look at what verse 2 says. <clears throat> the faithfulness in uh, the little continues. They had a baby, and when she saw that he was a fine child, that could just mean that she was a mum. Every mother. You know how many ugly kids there are in the world? <laughs> ugly newborns? All right. Not in this church, okay? Uh, it, it, it all depends on how much... Uh, 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 who you ask. You ask aunties, you ask random anonymous survey, are some babies ugly? Okay, yeah. <laughs> My nephew, that, that co-worker's kid, man, with the bulge thing, two eyes looking different directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, yep, right? You ask mums, have you ever had an ugly baby? The answer, never. No, I'm sure somebody's got a weird-looking kid, but not mine. You just look at your child, and everyone will say what, uh, what uh, Jochebed here said. It was a fine child. Now, that could be what it's saying. She was just doted with motherly love for her child. But probably what it's actually getting at is that she looked at her child and thought, this is a healthy, strong, uh, viable child. This boy seems, that, which, was, which, which was kind of 50-50 in the ancient world, especially as slaves, malnourished and unhealthy. When you have a baby, you, uh, a well-trained mother and the midwives can basically take a look and know, we might not have long. We might not be able to see this one through to childhood and then to, and then to adulthood and, and all the difficulties that would come in with hiding a young boy in this sort of situation, the outlooks might have been bleak, but she looked at this child and understood he was a healthy, strong boy. He was a fine child, and so she undertook... We're not told what she would have done if he wasn't. That's not really the point. The point is that she loved him. She saw her responsibility. She saw that he had life before him and ahead of him, and so she hid him for three months. What a bold... We can just skim right over that, but what a bold 
act of rebellion that was when a superpower is breathing down her neck and she decides to risk it all alongside her husband with her, her older children as well to hide this child as much as they could. Now, three months is one thing, but, but now the kids are upstairs, we can say this, but keeping a three-month-old quiet, that is a feat of uh, magnitude you cannot imagine, all right? Oh, we're at this church. We love the noise of babies during church. I know there's some other churches that make you wish that you had a little basket to wrap your kid in because the deacon's walking around like an Egyptian looking for where the noise is coming from, going to boot you out to children's church or lock you up in the mum's room. Not here. We love the noise of, of little babies in our midst, but we know they hit about three months or so going on. Their vocal cords are just starting to get some muscle. They are starting to wriggle and writhe and wanting to be active, and so this is danger point for Jochebed. This is danger point for Moses and his family. When she could hide him no longer, verse 3 says, she took him and uh, she, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it or, or, or rubbed it and covered it with bitumen and pitch. The word here, <coughs> the word here is actually the same word used for Genesis, uh, sorry, in the book of Genesis for the ark. In fact, it's, these are the only two places that this word is used in the Old Testament. For the, the ark that Noah built, and here the ark that, uh, that Jochebed is building for her child Moses. And, and I think the, the author of Moses, Moses, the author of both Genesis and Exodus, he's doing this intentionally. He's weaving together this great, glorious uh, salvation, redemptive acts of God throughout history and showing us the similarities because Moses was kind of like Noah. He was one that was born into an evil world. He was born to be a deliverer, to take God's people safely through water, away from an evil, unrighteous land into a purified and cleansed land. And yet both of them would show us that their salvation would not be enough to remove sin totally. Both Noah and Moses would show to us when they get out of there, so when they get through their redemption and they get to the new land given to them from God, Noah's cleansed through water. Moses cleansed through the, through the tabernacle and through warfare in Canaan. Both of them show to us that the human race, God's people, starting with Israel, required something much more than either of them could bring for true and lasting salvation. But Moses was just like Noah. Do you remember last week... What we recapped just before is that Mo, uh, uh, Pharaoh had, had put all of his attention on killing the sons. He was trying to, he was trying to uh, break the patriarchy and get rid of the, the fatherly lineage and the culture creators in Israel. But he had underestimated the daughters. He thought, let them live. What danger could they be? But what we start seeing today is that last week, the, the two heroes of the story were the women, the midwives, the, the two women who kept the, the children alive. And this week we see that Moses' mother and Moses' sister become the heroes of this portion of the story. He underestimated these two women and they end up being the cause of his downfall. These women are the heroes doing what women do best. Bring babies into the world and then guard them, protect them with a fierce motherly love and an ingenious industry. And that's what we see now. When, when Jochebed, I've thought many times over the years about what Jochebed was doing when she put her child into the, into the basket. At one point, I, I argued that, that she was actually in sin for doing that. She should have kept the child and come what may, die with him if need be. And she was doing reckless abandon, throwing her kid to the Nile. If you watch kids' movies and Veggie Tales, you, you come up with all sorts of ideas. What was she doing? Here's my theory 
And here's what I think happened. I'm not the only one here. I'm not an original in this. But here's, here's what I think we're supposed to read into this. That she, in taking this bulrush-made uh, uh, ark and putting bitumen and pitch all over it, what she was doing was creating a soundproof bassinet. She was making something that a baby could go into, and if in a noisy enough environment, like, say, some rushing water, some, some breeze through reeds, there would be a bit of a white noise that both he could go to sleep and others would not hear him if he were to make noise. So this was not a permanent living situation for him. She was not sayonaring and saluting him off into the Nile with high hopes. What she had done, I believe, is that when the village would, would send off their little cues, their, their warning signs, the, the red flag that the Egyptians are here, they're checking for boys, Jochebed would send Miriam with the, with the basket down into the reeds, place him in hiding place, and then she would stand somewhere between the Nile River offshoot and the house so that she could see what would happen as we're told. And what ends up happening this time where Miriam would usually let the child there until the soldiers are done their searching, then she'd go back down, get him, and bring them back. What we see is that this time his sister was standing at a distance and into the water. She, she was not used to Egyptians being in the water. But into the water and through the water came Pharaoh's own daughter. Now, now from the shore, you can't see the basket because it's behind the reeds. But from the position of her viewpoint, in the water, the, the daughter of Pharaoh was there bathing in, in their god, the Nile, and she sees a basket. And so it says that, that she told one of her servants, go get the basket. She didn't see Miriam yet, but she said, go get that basket. And this is why I think it was soundproof, because they didn't know that it was a baby, and they didn't know that he was crying until they took the lid off. And when they did, her maternal instincts, her motherly love, her feminine uh, strength overtook her. She saw it. Uh, she saw the child, and it says here uh, 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 that she is very much unlike her father. If she didn't see a child, I mean, it's one thing, to be in the royal family of the, uh, the, the pharaoh that is killing hundreds and thousands of young boys and, and to tolerate it, okay, and to be able to put up with being in that family. That's, that's one thing. It's entirely different when you're bathing to then find one of those babies and to kill it yourself. And that's just not who she is. The apple has fallen quite far from the tree with this daughter of pharaoh, and she sees the child, and verse uh, 7 uh, uh, Verse 6 tells us, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Surely as a mother, she was just thinking to herself, some, some mother has done all that she can. She's put a boy into the Nile and here he is. The, the God of the Nile has brought him to me. She took pity on him and of course pity on the mother that this child represented. And what we love is the ingenious of Miriam, Moses' sister right now. She, she pops out, you, you read it, she pops out and goes, hey, I see you found a baby. Not every day you find a baby. You probably don't have breast milk at home in the freezer, of course, and, and they hadn't invented formula yet. And so she goes, hey, I've got an idea. Hebrew women are having babies, and they don't use their breast milk because your family's killing their babies. So how about I go find one of those ladies? I bring her to you. You can just pay her or you can, you can utilize her breast milk. She can nurse him for you and, you know, situation solved. And what does the daughter of Pharaoh say to this bold, this, this very brave young girl who just dared to show her face to the royal party? She says, go. Now, can you imagine being Jochebed and Amran at home. Well, Amran would have been at, uh, under slavery, but being Jochebed that day when Miriam came home, no basket, no sum. She said, Mother, um, uh, uh, just listen to me. Don't, don't, don't go crazy. And, and by now, the, 
Jochebed would be in tears. We know how mums work. She's already thinking the worst and assuming the worst. And when she says, I was there, but I was keeping an eye on him. But the Egyptians came by and they were in the water and they found him. And he was crying and they picked him up. And she's just, she's lost. Her son has been killed in her mind. And here Miriam says, the daughter of Pharaoh found him. Not a good turn to the story. But she says, I've convinced her that you can nurse her child for her. And how Jochebed would have taken off sprinting to go to that point and find the daughter of Pharaoh to figure out what could be done. She runs, she goes, and here we see just, again, this, this, this strength of the feminine characters here in the midst of a genocidal situation. You've got Miriam, who just has the wisdom and the cunning and the bravery to orchestrate this situation that she's been a part of. You see, Jochebed, who, who, as she walks up to the daughter of Pharaoh, holding her son, the daughter of the man responsible for murdering the thousands of son in her, sons in her community, and she doesn't lash out. She doesn't uh, reach for the child. She, she shows this amazing restraint in order to play her part in this story. And Pharaoh's daughter shows the strength of rebelling against her father rather than rebelling against her deep maternal instincts. And so here the daughter of the Pharaoh tells her, what I need is for you to look after this child. You'll have the protection of the royal family for this child. He can play in public. You will never be arrested or fined or, 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 or stamped as rebellious for having a young boy because he's my boy now. But you need to nurse him. You need to raise him until that three or four years old. You need to look after him. And because I know this is all an unexpected situation for you, we'll pay you for it. What do we say about little acts of faithfulness? In the midst of all you're able to do, God comes by and blesses that act with extraordinary covenant faithfulness. She's going to now be on the, the, on the pay ticket of Egypt's royal house, protecting her own child. She's being paid to disobey the government. What a glorious and awesome thing. Their poverty even now was aided. She had a son back, getting paid for it, able to do everything freely. She's now the happiest woman in all of Goshen. But she was only to look after him until he was about three or four years old, until he would stop being breastfed, which in the ancient world, about three or four years old would be the time. So, so here he is, a three or a four-year-old, and it's the time for her heart to just be shattered in pieces. She had to walk him up to the royal household and hand him over so that he would then become, as the text says, become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What a heart wrenching moment that would have been. All of the, all of the loving, all of the nourishing, the, the, the care and the love that she has given to this child is now, is now simply taken from her and he's going to become just a memory to her. And he, she is likely to become a distant, faded memory to him. I've got, I've got sons who are four and three. I have not dared imagine how it would feel to be saying goodbye to them for the last time. That would be a gut. Can you imagine the, the, the weeping walk that she had when she went home? How many times she had fallen to the ground in tears and with, 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 with desperate cries towards God. She would have been a mess of a woman. Amran got home that afternoon. He had a wife to console because she was brokenhearted at the loss of her child, three or four years old, able to talk, know her name, ask for things. And those little hands and feet were taken away from her. And here we see that the daughter of Pharaoh names him. She names him Moses because I drew him up 
out of the water. Now, now we could go into all the symbolism of that name at this point, but we'll leave that for another sermon. But, but she's given to him a Hebrew name. Moses sounds like the act of taking up out of water in Hebrew, but in Egyptian, his name Moses actually sounds like the, the word for son. So we have a double name here, a son that she has drawn up out of the water, and he became hers. That's, that's, the, that's the origin story of Moses, the mighty faithfulness of God and the, the heroic acts of these women in Moses' life. So that now in verse 11, we're about 40 years into the future. Maybe, maybe 30 to 35 because he was a young boy and there's a few years before he turned 40, but here he is. He's now an old, older, older guy. How careful should I be with... He lived to 120, so for him he's not old, but 40 is pretty old today. Any amens? No? Okay, maybe around 70 or 80 you start clicking the old clock, but here he is. He's 40 and verse 11 tells us this. Now, the rest of his life, is going to be broken up into three stages of intervention, at least in this story. The rest of the chapter, he intervenes once, he intervenes twice, and he intervenes three times in different situations. And they're the three stories that the rest of the chapter uh, sort of revolve around. Look at verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. This is a story of an insufficient intervention. Moses, we're told here, is, uh, in Acts chapter 7, we're told, uh, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And one day when he was grown and 40 years old, he went out to look, his, uh, look out on his people. That's what Acts tells us. So, so he's, he's now about 40, and his whole upbringing has been the royal household, the, and learning, the philosophy, the religion, the mathematics, the, 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 the philosophy, the, the geology, the, the astrology, the astronomy, the, everything that the Egyptians had to learn, and they had learned much. He learned all of those things, and as Acts told us, he became mighty in words and deeds. He was an impressive man among his peers because of his learning and his status. Now, one question we might have at this point is, did he know his origins? Did he know that he was a Hebrew and that his Hebrews were descendants of Abraham? And the answer, I believe, is absolutely yes. Because he grew up with his own family for a few years, there would have been, there would have been that reason. Uh, also is the fact that he would have looked different, the Semitic nations look quite different from the uh, 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 nations that surround uh, that uh, lived in Egypt. He would have looked different, hair different, nose different, color different. He was also circumcised, which the Egyptians didn't do, so that would have been a very obvious clue. And verse 11, twice, we're told that he's looking at his people, the, 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 Jerus, uh, the, the Israelites. There's an identity already at this point that he is going to them as his own people. He has a, an identity with them. He loves them in a familial love, and he senses a sense of responsibility over them. The second question we might have is, did he know how bad the slavery was? Uh, like the story that comes out seems that he walks out, and lo and behold, the slaves aren't having a good time. He had no clue. He thought slavery, like it's like a water park, isn't it? Slavery? What are, they, what are they all complaining about? He just sees one guy getting beaten up, which seems to be pretty common in slavery, and he murders the guy. 
You have to think, did he know how bad this was? Was this similar to the, to the 1930s and 40s in Germany when, when, the, when the masses of the population just believed that the Jews were in different cities, they were, they were in different portions of the towns, they did not understand except for the, the inner circle and the secret surface and the staff that were there on the, in the death camps. They, they just didn't know that it was as bad as it was. Was it like that? We don't know. We're not entirely sure, but we know somehow that he, he knew where to find them. Had he never been there before? We don't know. Maybe he knew that they were slaves, but they were just a working class. They, they, they weren't as terribly treated as they in fact were. We're not sure about any of that. But the other question we can ask is, was he suspected to be a deliverer? Did his people or his family or even he himself, did they have some kind of expectation that salvation would be coming by his hand? Because Abraham had been told, 400 years, you'll be slaves in Egypt, and then I will lead you out by a mighty hand. And here they are with, with a family member in a high office, just like they had come into Egypt when Joseph was prime minister. And are they knowing the old prophecy? Are they recalling the, the mythologies of their own religion, if we can call it that, and thinking, surely this man in office will one day become our redeemer? Did, did he think that of himself? We're not sure, but we know that as he comes out among his people, he had some kind of sense of a desire to rescue them. The book of Acts tells us this as well. When Stephen is recapping what Moses did, he said that the, the people who he, he went among did not realize that he supposed that God would be bringing salvation by his hand. There was some kind of desire to intervene in a larger scale than just getting revenge on this one slave master. But when he was 40 years old, Acts tells us, he came into his heart, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And so here we have him go out and verse 11 and 12 show us that this man who he saw beating a Hebrew, he had premeditated murder and he went and struck him and buried him in the sand. <clears throat> he was willing to use his power and his prestige to better the Hebrew situation. He had that much. He had position and status and he wanted to leverage it for the sake of the Israelites, but this is not how God was going to do it. The murder of one blue-collar slave master at a time was simply not God's plan. It was ultimately an insufficient act of intervention. Moses acted out of rage rather than wisdom, and it would cost him severely. So first we've seen his, his origin story. Then we, we've seen his insufficient act of intervention, but now we're going to see his unwanted act of intervention. Look down at, down at uh, verse 13. And when he went out the next day, so he goes out to them again with some kind of desire to see how he might be of help. He goes out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and obviously one of them was in the wrong, uh, and evidently so, maybe stronger, maybe, maybe beating an older man, maybe doing something that was obviously uh, wrong, but whatever the case, Moses knows who's in the right and the wrong, and he says to the one who is in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Here he is again trying to, trying to act out as an activist. The, the one thing you get from Moses at this point, he's a doer. He's not a talker. He's an activist. He's an initiator. He, he, he steps in to help the oppressed. He didn't uh, 
However, this, the, these people did not want Moses' leadership. They looked at him as some white-collar, suit-wearing, pansy, soft boy from an office who just dared for the second day in a row to step out of his air conditioning and his grape-eating and his free food buffet and come down and visit us slaves. And what does he want to do? Start telling us what to do. We're just not going to have it. They look at him as, as, as somebody they totally reject. And so it doesn't even say that the guy getting beat up disagreed and said, no, I, I like his leadership. No, he's, he's sitting there, bloodied mouth, head on the congregate, going, yeah, rack off, Moses. He just doesn't want anything to do with this royal Egyptian's intervention. They did not see him as one of their people, though he saw them as one of his people. He had no clue. This would have been in their mind. This Moses, he had no clue what it was like to be an outcast to have to live off the land, to have to suffer through the seasons. He had no clue about that. We don't want him with us. Moses learned that Pharaoh had learned. He feared that the, 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 uh, his murder of an Egyptian would get to Pharaoh, and so he ran away to the land of Midian. Now, this raises other questions. Why, as a prince of Egypt, would you not be able to get your name cleared? They weren't the most moral of people. Why did he not have, have, have uh, legal powers to just sort of uh, uh, wipe that slate clean? But I think there's more going on than what you first read. The Pharaoh is seeing in this act a statement of picking a side. He has, by going out to his people, by, uh, by intervening for them, by killing an Egyptian, he was clearly standing on the side of the Israelites as a royal house member. Now, now, was he a bit of an agitator and a political activist in his years growing up? He would have had access to the court, and, and had he in those growing years ever said something like, this slavery is unjust, we should give them some freedom, let my people go, had he ever tried that? Like, did Pharaoh know this guy to be a troublemaker? We don't know. But we know that this murder is the last straw. Pharaoh's thinking in his mind, the very people that we feared would one day rise up against us now have a brother in my own household. And he has sided with them and declared war against me by striking an officer. That, that deserves death. You can imagine Pharaoh saying to his daughter, your son has done th something for the last time. He is out of here. I am removing the threat to my nation. Little does he know that he is sending him right where God wants him. And Moses runs out to Midian. That is, over a large wilderness, over into the deserts of Arabia. And there he goes. Look now at verse 16. <clears throat> We've seen his insufficient intervention. We've seen his unwanted intervention. And now thirdly, we finally see a worthwhile Intervention. The next chapter of his life is introduced by this next scene, as again, he is a man of action. Verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian. The Midianites were born out of Abraham's line. Not many people know this. Uh, Abraham had had a wife after Sarah, and one of her children was Midian, who he sent out into the wilderness. And Midian was, of course, the head of the people over a few hundred years, became the tribe of the Midianites. They were pagan and did not worship the god of Abraham. So this man is Jethro, the, the, the father of, the future father-in-law of Moses. His clan name would have been Reuel, and that's our, what, what we receive here today. The priest of Midian, he had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock, and shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Now, what you need to see here is that, is again, we're getting this character picture of Moses. He's just an alpha male. 
He is this masculine, action-taker, hero guy who can't sit idly by, but there's, there's more to it than that. He is not a coward. He has, he has just stood up for the sake of these, again, somebody's being oppressed and somebody's in the wrong. He stands up, he takes action, but do you see the plural? There's multiple shepherds, there's one Moses. There's one guy who's just been hitchhiking his way right across the desert, and then there's these well-fed, well-watered, probably muscly young shepherds, and he's able to, I don't know what jujitsu they taught him in Egypt, but he's able to handle these guys in such a way as the group of them get going. Not only that, but he's then able to do the work that it would have taken seven women to do for multiple hours. Do you remember what their father says? They come back at noon. They would have set out at daybreak. It only takes them six hours, the seven of them. And he says, you're, you're done pretty quick. It usually takes you all day, the seven of you. And here's Moses, able to wrangle, shepherd, feed, and do, and carry, undertake the work of seven women in just a short time. He's a hard-working man who fought off a gang of shepherds. And he doesn't ask for a reward. This was simply because this was the right thing to do. He intervened. Now, of course, Jethro is confused as to why his daughters. I also think there's a clue here that Pharaoh was strapping. He was a good-looking Pharaoh. Moses was a strapping young guy because here are these women, and they know the customs. You show hospitality to a man like this, and I'm going to uh, barter a guess that they walked away starstruck. They were just amazed at how amazingly you know, muscly this Tarzan of a guy was. They just go home and they've totally forgotten the customs of the day. And their dad goes, what happened? And they go, oh, this Egyptian, he just swung in and started uppercutting the shepherds. And so somehow they forgot what happened. Uh, they forgot what to do. And he sends them back. Go get him, bring him back. That's the custom. Let's look after him. And so Moses goes back. He, he came and he resides and embraces the life in obscurity knowing that he was a failure. He had failed as an Egyptian royal household member. He had failed as a Hebrew savior. And so now he moves into the desert, accepts the invitation to live in a pagan family, and accepts the invitation to marry the woman Zephora. He resides himself to being an alien, an outcast and a sojourner in a land that he was not supposed to be living in. And so he calls his son, after the fact, he says, I will name him Gershom, for he said, I have become a sojourner in a foreign land. What was he talking about? What was the foreign land? Was, was Egypt the foreign land that he said, I grew up in a foreign land I'm meant to be in Canaan? Or, or was he saying that I'm now in Midian and Egypt is my land? Whatever it is, on both accounts, both as an Egyptian and as a Hebrew, he's a failure. He's where he's not supposed to to be. This, this intervention, though humble and small, repeats for us the same theme that God was, was behind it all, blessing the works of the small, humble faithfulness. That, this has been a, a theme through his whole life. When he tried to do something glorious and, 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 and fight the system, he was downcast, nothing worked. When he simply acted out in obedience, in humility, much like his mother and sister, God blessed it with his providence to bring about the next stage in his preparation. So just as these things seem final now, the scene seems to have settled down. We've left Egypt, we've followed Moses right east over into the Midianite wilderness. He's got a child, he's got a family, he's in a new, new people group. Everything's settling down. And verse 23 throws us back to Egypt. And now we see God's intervention, not Moses, his failed intervention, his unwanted intervention, 
but now God's active covenantal intervention. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Look at how many times this this language is used of their, their, their crying out to God. It says, first of all, they groaned, and then it says they cried out for help. Then it says their cry came up to God, and they were groaning. Four times this language is used to show that time, that would have changed much for Moses, had changed nothing for the Israelites. Political change, though that's good news to Moses because the guy who wants him dead is now gone. It's no better news for the Israelites. They are still in the pit of their misery and despair. However, prayer to a covenant-keeping God brought about the decisive change. What time doesn't change, what politics doesn't change, prayer to a covenant-keeping God changes everything. Look back at verse 23 again. It says at the end, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This language of him seeing and hearing and remembering and knowing, it's not as if he's standing aloof and then his alarm clock goes off, he totally forgot that he left the Israelites in the oven. And now they're all burned and destroyed and hurt and oppressed. He, the last time I checked on them, one of them was ruling Egypt. I'll, I'm sure they're still okay. Let's go check on them. It's not as if it's like that. And yet it's presented kind of like that. The, the way that Moses is being inspired by the Spirit to write this story is to, to stress the importance of our reliance on God as he is the covenant-keeping, powerful God. That, that his sovereignty... His omnipotence, his his knowledge of everything that happens does not rule out our involvement and our need to fulfill our part of the covenant. And in this covenant, in Abraham's covenant, in, in, in the Israelite covenant, their requirement was to call out to their God for help. Had they done this before? It seems not. Had they recognized that the time had come, the 400 years had passed, and now it was time to pray? It seems so. They cry out to God, which is the solution that nothing else could bring. Prayer to a covenant-keeping God could do. And even though this is a decisive moment of change in the story where God now intervenes and shows himself to Moses out in the wilderness, even though that's about to happen, everything has changed, and for the Israelites, nothing will change for a good long time. But God is working in the background. In fact, he's already been working for over 40 years in the life of Moses to bring this point about. But before we even pray, Jesus told us, before the words leave our lips, God knows what is on our hearts and seeks to answer it. It says here that God was remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had reiterated his promise to Abraham, which uh, to his son Isaac, and then to his son Jacob. Three times had been repeated the promise, something along the lines of, I will make you many people, I will take you to the land of Canaan, you will inhabit that. To Abraham, God told this in Genesis 15, know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That's what God had promised Abraham. 
God had reiterated something similar to Isaac about the Abrahamic promise when he said, I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring I give all these lands of Canaan and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. He's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. When Jacob in Genesis 46 was about to go into the land of Egypt to go and visit his long lost son Joseph again, as he was about to set off, God visited him and said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. God's plans, his purposes, his promises, and his salvation, unlike Moses, right? Moses came out and looked at his people and saw their burdens. He tried to do something, and he was thwarted by one guy who said, rack off, I don't want your leadership. He couldn't even kill one guy and get away with it. His plans were so easily thought of, but he is God. He is looking down on his people. He is seeing their affliction and their burden. And what we are learning is that this covenant will not be thwarted. He will establish, he will fulfill the promises that he made and save his people. Moses was God's chosen mediator to bring those promises about. Moses, who has been the, the center of, that, uh, of Exodus chapter 2, is the person that God is preparing in order to redeem the Israelites from Egypt. But he had to be the specific mediator that God needed him to be. Moses was not, it was not enough that he was born into a slave household grow up as a slave, and then somehow step out in, in, in salvation and redemption. That wouldn't have done. He was a slave. He would never have been able to escape into the wilderness to meet God because he was a slave. So what God had done is he prepared Moses in such a way that first, did you notice, he was born as a pure Levite. Father was a Levite. Mother was a Levite. Now that, that might sound uh, uh, irrelevant in Exodus chapter 2, but later on in this book, God will establish the Levite clan as the only people able to be priests. The only people allowed to represent God to the people and to come into his holy presence. So right from his birth, no, from his conception, God was already preparing the mediator to be the exact mediator that the Israelites needed. That he, made, he took him from slavery and made him a prince so that he had power and status and freedom and knowledge and learning. These things were so important for Moses to be able to bring about the redemption that God had planned. God was preparing the perfect mediator that the people needed. However, he was not, though he was compassionate and he cared for his people, he could not be a sympathetic mediator, could he? As a prince growing up on the riches of Egypt, walking among the slaves. He cared for them, but they could look at him and say, you don't know what it's like to live in suffering and affliction on the land in a place that is not your home. You don't know what it's like. And so God took him to the desert in order to learn the pain of living off the land, in order to know the pain of poverty and having no riches and being in a land that was not his own so that he might be sympathetic with his people, and he was taken into the wilderness to be tested and to be tried so that he might come back out of the wilderness a stronger, more established covenant mediator. And just as the Israelites needed just that specific kind of mediator and God produced it, so also we as sinners, 
human beings lost in our sin, enslaved to the devil and our sin, we needed for our ultimate spiritual redemption and salvation a very particular and specific kind of mediator. We needed somebody who was, who was one of us, who was, who was one of us and, and able to identify with us, just as Moses had been. So Jesus comes and is born into our race to take on our flesh and be able to say that he is truly one of us. But if he was merely one of us and not higher and more powerful and of a higher status, then he would be no good to us because he would be a slave just like us. And so Jesus is God and man come into the world, one of us and yet from a higher, more powerful, infinite status. Also, Jesus did not simply come and live as a prince and a king and know only pleasure but he came and he suffered under temptation. He suffered under oppression. He suffered under the sinful acts of other people. He also was hunted at his death so that he had to flee. He also was persecuted and hated by his brothers all his life so that just like us, he can say, I know what the oppression you're under is like. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says this, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Is this not the perfect picture that Moses' story is picturing for us? That Jesus was one of us, yet above us. He came to us and understood the plight and the difficulty and the oppression we were under so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest, much better than Moses, much, much better than Moses, to be able to offer up propitiation to God by his own blood in his death on the cross. Not a mere angel, he was God. Not an angel, he was one of us. God in human flesh, dying on the cross where our sins were taken into his account. Our sins were laid on his shoulders and God's wrath, God's anger, God's punishment for our sin was poured out on him so that he might rise victoriously on the third day and declare that salvation has been won. A faithful, merciful, accomplishing high priest has been given from heaven. You may be saved from your sin. That is my ultimate question for you today. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you rested on his sacrifice as the only way that you as a sinner can get into heaven? Have you, have you believed and honored that what God has promised in his covenant, that all who come to me, through the name of Jesus. All who come to me through the pathway of believing in Jesus, I will accept you. I will adopt you. I will forgive you. Have, you. have you believed God's covenantal promises that he puts forward in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. God, being so removed historically from all that happened in Exodus, it is difficult to realize and, and make it seem real to us what was happening in those days. But these are the story of real people, real mothers losing their sons. Just as, as Mary would one day have to say goodbye to her son, just as God, you yourself 
with no obligation, with, with pure voluntary love, you offered your son something that the first Miriam and the second Miriam had no clue how, of the kind of love you had. You did that, God. Uh, these are real sisters in the situation trying to figure out what to do. These were, these were real people being murdered and oppressed. This is a, a real man, Moses, in history, doing these things in order to try and bring about things that you had promised So God, we thank you that in the story we are also seeing your ultimate plan of redemption in Christ. We thank you that we are seeing your sovereignty and your faithfulness and all the lessons we can draw from this living living story in the word of God for us today. Pray that you would apply it to us, that we we would understand it more and live more faithfully in our day because of it. But God, I also ask that we would understand the reality and the truth of what was done in the ultimate redemption. In, in Jesus Christ and the gospel, how, how even that can be a bit of a mythology for us, can be a, a fable and a story, but not a real, real life historical truth. But God, would you make it real? Would the cross not lose its wonder for us as Jesus was a real, true man who really suffered and really did the things that we read that he did in the books of, in the pages of scripture and, and that in going to the cross, it was not simply a, 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 a placard of, of love or affection or romance, Father God, in his death, how, how quickly this, this escapes and becomes an ethereal kind of uh, truism rather than a, a gut held reality for us that Jesus died for my sin. Father God, how often we are to believe that he can die for others. He he perished for other people's sins. Other people can be forgiven. But this thing that I have done, this sin that I've committed, this life that I have lived, this soul that I have blemished, this can never be forgiven. But God, give to us a sense of the reality. Jesus truly died for me. And you will never require of my hand a payment that has already been made by your son. Father God, settle that reality in our hearts that we might know the freedom of the gospel. And for those who do not know Jesus, would today be the day that they leave their their sin, that they walk free of their slavery and come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be forgiven of all of their guilt and become one of the, the, the members of your bride, the church, one of your children in your family forevermore. God, we pray all of these things in the name of our merciful and faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.